you know, highlight uh, almost of the entire Bible, the, the most wonderful chapter, certainly in uh, the book of Romans, and many think of it as being the peak of all of the scripture because of what it relates to us about how the salvation that Christ has procured for us through his own sacrificial death absolutely changes everything for us. I'm going to read the passage it will be in today, and then we'll kind of do a quick review and, and then move on. So we're in Romans 8. I'm going to read from verse 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits for, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul has been relating, quick review, interactive again this week, okay? I want to make sure that we're getting these, the flow of the book down as a congregation, not just me as the, the one who's preaching through it. So we come into this world condemned, right? Condemned for our, the word would be sin. You knew that word, right? We are under the wrath of God, under his condemnation, because we're sinners uh, through and through. And, and Paul says the only way that we can be right with God is through the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because in it is revealed how to have a right relationship with God, how sinners can be made right with God. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that it, not only for the gospel, that it, but it, it makes so clear that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. I am so glad for that. Otherwise, I would still be lost in my sin. Because I, was, I would be thinking like so many people think. I'm better than other people. So I'll be okay in the end. And no, no one's going to be okay in the end apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we get right with God? The big word is, it's chapter 3, 21 through 5, 21. The word is justification. Is, it, is this like the class that is like afraid to say it out loud because it might be wrong? You should know this. Justification. God declaring us righteous in his eyes through faith in Jesus Christ, because the blood that Christ shed purchased our redemption. And through his death, God's wrath was propitiated, satisfied, holy, so that it would not come upon us because it came upon him. And then in chapter 6 through 8, he's explaining how that justification by faith has impacted us 
in, in three ways. First of all, Romans 6, it, it, it made it to be true that we are dead to sin. Not dead in sin any longer, but dead to sin. It's penalty and it's power. Now we know what the penalty is, right? The wages of sin is death. Right, that's the penalty. The power of it is that it ruled over us. We didn't, before we knew Christ, we had no, no independence. There was no free will. We were under the will of Satan and the world and the flesh. We had no choice. We were slaves of sin. He had dominion over us, and we've been set free from that. We are to present ourselves to God as servants of righteousness instead of being slaves of sin. He broke, we sang it, he broke every chain. He set us free. Don't be putting the chains back on. That's just stupid. Right? That's just stupid as a believer to, to chain yourself to sin again. No. And then chapter 7, he says, not only are you dead to sin, but you're dead to the law. Dead to the law in this sense. To its penalty and its power. The penalty of the law was condemnation for breaking it. And the, the, the law revealed the character of God and it also revealed our sinful tendencies. That's good. That's good. It was good that the law did that. So because we put our faith in Christ and he died to the law, as, as Greg said a little while ago, he took it, the condemnation of the law, for us, we no longer face the penalty of the law. And we're not under the power of the law either. And the power of the law is that it, it, it ruled over us by causing guilt and shame. Guilt and shame because we, we know, we know we couldn't keep it. We couldn't keep it. Try as we would, we couldn't keep it. Knowing that it was the right thing to do, we couldn't keep it. There was only failure and frustration at the end of chapter 7 for those who want to keep the law to be right with God. It's impossible you'll end up being a wretched person, carrying around the body of death, is how Paul put it. And then we come to chapter 8. Yes, chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So chapter 8 is we're alive in the spirit. That's right, we're alive in the spirit. And the whole chapter, chapter 8, is all about the the Spirit's ministry in our lives. Twenty-some times the word Spirit is used. It's all about Him doing for us what we could never do on our, on our own. The, the, Paul put it in, in Romans uh, uh, verses 1 through 4 that, that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ because Christ paid the penalty for us, right? He paid the penalty. We were pardoned because of what He did and, and, and then it says, in order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us. We, what? What? I thought we were dead to the law. No, no, no. We're dead to the idea that we could ever keep it on our own. <laughs> Put that to death. Put that to death because that gets you nowhere but hell. But we're alive in the Spirit and the Spirit indwells us and He actually enables us he is the one who fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in us. It's not us fulfilling it. You know, that's, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. No, it's the Spirit. I've got you. I've got you. Here we go. You ready? Fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Man, that's exciting. 
That is so exciting. And then in, in verses 5 through 11, Paul says, I want you to know there, there are two categories of people in this world. Two categories of people. And, and those categories are those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Now, he's not talking about believers in both cases. He's making the point. Unbelievers still live according to the flesh. They are under the dominion of sin, under the power and penalty of the law. They live with a mindset that is fleshly. They live with an end that is death. And the, the reason is, is because they, have, they continue to submit themselves to sin and Satan. That's the first category. The second category is those that live according to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into believers, and that changes everything. It changes everything. It, it changes the way they view life. And we, we talked about that. I'm not going to go over it again, but just a reminder. Christians think differently about what's going on in the world than unbelievers. Right? We know that, right? Yeah. Different worldview. A Christian worldview is different. And, and that brought about a different end. And that was life and righteousness, he says in those verses. And the reason is because we do submit to the Spirit. And the Spirit is living in us. He makes all the changes necessary. And then in verses 12 through 13, he said, Jesus paid for our sins, yes, but we still have a debt to pay. We still have a debt to pay. And that debt was that we are to live according to the Spirit. We have a debt, not to the flesh. We have no debt to the flesh anymore. We've been set free from sin and death, and the power of Satan and all of that. But we do have a debt to pay. It's not a debt to earn something. It is a, bet, a debt that we pay out of gratefulness for what's been done for us. We, we have an obligation to live according to the Spirit. And that means two things. It means, number one, learning to submit to the Spirit's leading. That's verse 14 uh, that we looked at last week. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The opposite is true. Those who are not led by the Spirit are not the sons of God. They, they don't belong to God's family. But those who have the Spirit in them are led by the Spirit, and that is evidence or proof or attestation that they, in fact, are children of God. So we learn to submit to the Spirit's leading. Now, how does he lead us? I'll just refresh your mind. He leads us primarily through the Scriptures and, and, and through prayer and through the wisdom that God has given other believers that we come in contact with and they share their insight and their wisdom with us. They help us as we walk through the struggles of life. There are, there are other ways that the Spirit leads us he can, he can just affect our conscience. It's like, oh, wait, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be doing that, right? But truth is, that comes from the word being implanted into us. I mean, if the word is treasured up in our heart, as David said in Psalm 119, it, it, then it keeps us clean, he writes. It keeps us clean because the Spirit will use that. It's like a search button on a, on, on a computer. It's like, okay, here's what I'm facing. What does the Spirit say? And the Spirit brings it right to our minds. Right to our minds. Instantaneously. You don't have to worry about Wi-Fi speed with them. It'll just bring it to your mind because you placed it in your heart. And then you'll be victorious and you won't give in to that sin. Praise Him for that. 
Follow the leading of the Spirit. And then secondly, we need to learn to listen to what the Spirit is saying. And that was verses 15 through 17. We just started looking at that last week, just made one point out. Let me read those verses. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Spirit is constantly speaking to us through the Word of God, through prayer, and through other people, etc., as I've already mentioned. But that's not what Paul is primarily talking about here. What he's saying here is listen to what the Spirit is saying in regard to the fact that you are in God's family. You are in God's family. That's what the Spirit says to you. You're a child of God. And, and he says, the spirit that we receive from God, the Holy Spirit, does not work in our life through bondage and fear. <laughs> that was the law. That was sin. No, he gives us a different spirit, a spirit of life and, uh, and, and, and righteousness and so on. So learn to listen to what he's saying. As that's happening in your life, you'll be hearing him say, uh, you're a child of God. And by the way, he says, not only does he speak to you, but he speaks through you. He speaks through you. And that's what he's saying when he says, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That's the Spirit speaking through us. And that is a reminder to us that God is our Father. He's not to be feared because he is dear to us. He's not the sovereign God sitting over providentially over all things that's got a long stick that's ready to hit his subjects when they mess up. No, he's a father says, uh, you know, you kind of blew it again, didn't you? Here, let me put my arm around you and just let's have a little conversation about the way that that should have been handled. Or you're struggling and you're, you're just, you're, you're sorrowful and he puts his arms around you and he gives you a hug and says, I love you so much. Let me make it better. We cry, Abba. Father, that's the Spirit. It's the only one who can produce that in us. And then, and that's where we left off, and then, not only does he say that, but he says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit or to our spirit that we are children of God. So you got two spirits here. You got the human spirit and you got the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's constantly communicating with your regenerated human spirit. It's like, hey, Remember, you're a child of God. So live like it. Remember, God's your father, so act like his child. He's constantly communicating with us that message. Hopefully you hear that on a regular basis. I'm not talking about an audible voice. You know, some people may think that that's happened. I've never heard an audible voice from God, uh, but I sure have heard him in my heart and my mind. As I read the scriptures, as I pray, and as I talk with other people, and so on, he speaks to me. And he's constantly saying, hey, you're, you're a child of God. But let me tell you, there's more to it than that. If you're a child, then you're an heir. You're an heir of God. And, and you're a fellow heir with Christ. Wow, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? And that's pretty awesome. 
So connected to the spirit, communicating with our spirit that we're children is this amazing and wonderful truth that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, last week we talked about adoption and how adoption in that culture was something that was a privilege, an honor, because you were taken from being unwanted and brought into a place of wantedness and privilege and blessing. And in fact, so much so that the adopted child had all the benefits, all the privileges, all the, uh, everything that belonged to the natural born child belonged to the adopted child. And so in, in that culture, that, that was true. And included with that was this fact that the adopted child became an equal heir of all that belonged to the natural born children in the family. And in the same way, Paul's saying those who are united with Christ through faith have been adopted into God's family. That's what he said. And consequently have become equal heirs with, let's put it this way, the natural born child. And by natural born, I mean the son of God, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us. The unique son of God. We become equal heirs with him. So according to the Father's own words in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Jesus Christ, the Son, is the heir of all things. And since believers are seen by the Heavenly Father as equal children because of what Christ has done, they too are heirs of all things. Now, that gets a lot of people really excited. But sometimes for the wrong reason. It would be a mistake. It would be a mistake for us to understand the inheritance that Paul is referring to as speaking of physical health and material wealth, as some people think. I mean, the prosperity gospel, as it is often called, tends to focus on that, tends to focus on the things of this present age that tend to draw us into, I I put it into self-centered living self-centered living on, on, on what may be accumulated to bring about a pleasantness or a pleasurableness to life in the here and now. You know, you're an heir of God. You're royal kids, so God wants you to have everything. He wants you to have it all, material wealth and, and, uh, and, and health. But the focus in this text is not on the present age, but it is on the age to come. It is what awaits us. And all you have to do is look at verse 17 at the end where he says, we are co-heirs or fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer together with him. We await the glory that is coming, right? That's what he's talking about. We suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So it's not talking about the here and now. It's talking about the inheritance that we receive in heaven. And Peter puts it this way. That's an inheritance that is undefiled and imperishable. It is is kept in heaven, reserved in heaven for us by the power of God. It's a sure deal. That inheritance will never be affected by inflation. It's not like a 4OK that you can be wiped out based on what's happening with the economy. No, our our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Now, we have some benefits here and now, certainly. And God provides all that we need for life and uh, godliness, certainly. 
We have an abundance in our own country, especially. As believers, we enjoy that. But that's not what Paul's talking about, as being a fellow heir with Christ, and, 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 and that all things belong to us. It's primarily talking about heaven. And lastly, Paul adds what should not really be viewed as a conditional statement, declaring what must be done in order to receive the inheritance, but rather as a statement of what is true for those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now, the way the ESV puts it, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, it makes it sound like a conditional sentence, right? Well, if you suffer with him, then you get the inheritance. Other translations have it a little bit better, but this is a conjunction that is used here, the word provide. It's a conjunction that would be better translated in this way. If it is true, and it is, or since it is true that you suffer together with him in order to be glorified with him. So it's a statement of what is a reality rather than what must be done to earn something. Paul and, and, and the rest of the New Testament writers make it clear that believers have no easy path in this present age. Uh, the Lord suffered, right? I, I think we just remembered that. But that his suffering went well beyond what happened when he was crucified. He suffered just living among people. The perfect son of God I mean, brothers who didn't even believe in him would, would probably mock him, you know, or having a, you know, it's like maybe mom would say every now and then, why can't you be like your brother? It's like, well, no one can be like him. You know, the perfect one lived among imperfect people. The sinless one lived among sinful people around it all the time. No wonder he had to go out by himself at times and just converse with the father. Get away from the doubting disciples and the plaguing Christians wanting something for their own benefit. He suffered much. The Lord suffered, and we are called to suffer as well. Paul will go on in the next section to say much, the verses that we read at the beginning, say much about suffering and the Spirit's involvement in it. But at this point, he's just making it clear that suffering... And the promised inheritance are part of a gospel package. Let me say that again. Suffering and the promised inheritance are a package deal. A package deal. We do not gain the privileges of the inheritance of the gospel without acquiring also the associated pain that goes with it. A lot of people want the privileges. They don't want the pain. Paul says they go together. Okay, so that brings us to the verses that we started with, uh, 8, 18 through 30. And I titled this, this section for myself two ways. Uh, Grown but don't grumble, or living holy while hurting. I think that both of those express what Paul's kind of communicating in this section. So let me ask you, what are you like? When things go from bad to worse, and someone may say to you at the, the times like, hey, cheer up, things could always be worse. You've heard that, right? And sure enough, you cheer up, and what happens? Things get worse. <laughs> it's like we all, 
we all have really tough days. Uh, some hit us harder than others. I mean, that's true. But l- listen to this story that Chuck Swindoll writes about in one of his books about a hard hat worker. Uh, and, and this actually happened. My wife is remembering this story, I think. It's so, so good. So the worker wrote, When I got to the building, I found that the hurricane had knocked off some bricks around the top. So I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building and hoisted up a couple barrels full of bricks. When I fixed the damaged area, there were a lot of bricks left over. And then I went to the bottom and began releasing the line. Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was much heavier than I was. And before I knew what was happening, the barrel started coming down, jerking me up. I decided to hang on, since I was too far off the ground by then to jump. And halfway up, I met the barrel of bricks coming down. (laughs) I received a hard blow on my shoulder. I then continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers pinched and jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground hard, it burst its bottom, allowing the bricks to spill out. I was now heavier than the barrel. So I started down again at high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up fast and received severe injuries to my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the pile of spilled bricks, getting several painful cuts and deep bruises. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of my grip on the line. The barrel came down fast, giving another blow on my head and putting me in the hospital. I respectfully request sick leave. (laughs) Now that's a hard day. Let's talk a little bit about living with suffering. Because that's what Paul is talking about in the verses that we read. Living with suffering. Several years ago, a German pastor was visiting the United States and was asked by someone what he thought was the most important problem that American Christians faced. And his response is thought-provoking, still is, was then and still is. He said that Americans don't know how to deal with suffering, and they don't consider it to be a legitimate part of life. He noted that again and again, again, that he got the impression, uh, impression that suffering is regarded as something which is fundamentally inadmissible. It's disturbing, embarrassing, and not to be endured. Now, I I really think that his observation was correct. Modern Christianity, or we might say postmodern Christianity, particularly in the West, in Western culture, in contrast with the biblical example, has presented the picture that Christians should be able to live a pain-free life. A message communicated by many preachers Today, particularly those of the prosperity gospel persuasion, is that believers should be able to experience um, a life that is almost free, almost free of pain and suffering, that they should be able to realize the, the bliss of the life to come in the here and now. And the purpose of the Christian life has shifted for people like that. It's shifted from knowing and serving Christ no matter what kind of suffering we face to arranging life so that all is pleasant and all is pleasurable. And and those who claim to be Christians have been tricked into thinking that they don't have to feel the impact of 
you know, family conflict or losing their job or being ridiculed for their faith, other such things, because they are God's children. They're God's children, and he, he only wants for them to experience the very best things in life. So what God has done for believers in this view, it seems no longer is meant to get them through the hard times, but it is to absolutely remove the hard times. American Christians particularly have the idea that suffering is not a legitimate part of life and that it is to be avoided at all costs, at least for those who profess faith in Christ. However, the reality of life, okay, I like that because it's true. You know, this is reality of life and, and the teaching of God's word doesn't allow such a view to be held as truth. Let me say that again. That view that was expressed is not truth. God's word doesn't allow that, and the reality of life does not allow that. And, and, and the truth is, there is no escape from an aching soul that causes us to groan. That's part of life. Not only is suffering going to be a part of our lives, but as I read the scripture, I find that Christians are, listen to this, meant to suffer. Meant to suffer. Paul indicated this in a statement, in a statement that we're fellow heirs with Christ, since it is true that we suffer with him, right? Right in our text, he implies that. Peter wrote that we were uh, called to suffer, called to this, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow. 1 Peter 2.21 in Philippians 1.29, Paul takes it a step further and he says that it is a privilege, a privilege to suffer for Christ. Hmm. He wrote, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Can we just leave off the last part of that? It's, a, it's been granted to us to believe. The faith that we have, it was given to us. Right? It was given to us, granted to us. Repentance, that was gifted to us. What a privilege. Don't disconnect it from the last part. And to suffer for his sake. God wants us to be people who maintain an unswerving confidence in who he is and what he has done for us that equips us. It actually equips us to face life when it's difficult. He wants us to be courageous people who are deeply, deeply bothered by the horrors of living in a fallen world. You know, people, people that look honestly at, at suffering, who feel overwhelmed by it at times, and yet they emerge prepared to live for the glory of God. Thank you, Greg. Amen. Amen to that. Amen to that. One person put it well, I think. Pretty good metaphor. Christians are kind of like tea bags. They're kind of useless or no good until they go through hot water. You got to be steeped in suffering to really be what God wants you to be. So we we may face the fact that is before us that suffering is going to occur in our lives. I think everyone here would say, "Amen to that." Yeah, that's part of life. 
And it may be suffering that is common to all people. Let's not mistake this. The loss of loved one through death, that's, we all experience that, believers and unbelievers alike. The suffering of being hit, by, uh, hit hard by the effects of bad weather. You know, the hurricane that just hit the southeast, it impacted believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, losing a job, you know, when there's a cutback, believers aren't guaranteed that they're going to keep their job any more than unbelievers. Making ends meet with the impact of inflation. I just read this morning that turkeys have gone up 73%. Have fun buying one for Thanksgiving this year. 73%. It affects everyone. You go into the store and you buy a turkey. You say, well, I'm a believer. Do I get 73% cheaper than unbelievers? No. No, That's not going to happen. It's common to all. Struggling in relationships, the loss of friends that have been close. Those are all things that are common in in this world. But there's also suffering that is particular to believers. I mean, loss of friends or family caused by by our faith in Christ. The loss of a job because of refusing to give in to unethical or immoral business practices where you're required to do something wrong, like lying or cheating, or inflating costs for the benefit of the uh, employer. Facing reproach because of standing up in a culture that has abandoned God and his moral code. Grief and struggles that are caused by sin and temptation. And there's many more. So, The questions that face us really as we think about this is how can we live with suffering? How can we do it? How how can we end up being the kind of Christian who will be steadfast even in the face of pain that is difficult to bear? How can we be the kind of Christians who will groan but not grumble? Who will groan but not grumble about the suffering that we are experiencing in life? How How can we remain holy even though Life is really bringing a lot of hurt to us at this moment. And the answer to those kind of questions is found in Romans 8, 18 through 30. And Paul's going to give three reasons that you know, should allow us to navigate through times of suffering uh, without grumbling. We're not going to cover three of them today. We're going to look at one of them. And then next week we'll look at the other two. So the first reason that we should be able to live holy though hurting or live life groaning but not grumbling is because of the prospect of glory. The prospect of glory. And that's these verses that we read, verses 18 through 25. Three things in that that I want us to, uh, to see. First is, and if you're filling in your insert, you might have already filled in this word, but it might be the wrong word. So what you want to fill in is comparing the weight of things. Now, some of you may have, you know, thought, well, it must be worth because verse 18 says that I do not consider the, uh, you know, suffering of this present age to be worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. And you wouldn't be wrong in putting the word worth in, but the, the focus on it is really the weightiness of it. And see, Paul had raised the subject again in verse 17 where he says the believers suffer with Christ with the thought of being glorified with him in mind, right? It's like we're heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed or since it is true that we suffer with him, 
in order to be glorified with them. So he says in verse 18 again, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now what a significant statement. What a significant statement. I mean, I, I, this verse actually gets me a little excited. I get a little excited as, as I read this. In fact, every word in it almost makes me get a little animated and excited. This is thrilling stuff. But, so we're just going to kind of walk through this verse. Notice that Paul says that he considers this matter. I, I do not consider that the suffering, the word consider. The meaning of this word, translated consider, logizomai is a Greek word. It's not a reference to mere personal opinion. It's not a reference to a, a slight thought given to something. Rather, it includes the idea of closely evaluating and careful, carefully working through things and, and doing that on, on a given matter. So it all re- also refers to reckoning or counting something as being true. This is what I want us to see. It's not just a thought process, but it is a conclusion that is derived. So I, I, I don't reckon it to be true that the sufferings of this present age, present time, are worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. This is the same word that was used, for example, in Romans Four and verse three, we studied it together, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. Same word. So Paul's emphasizing that in our in our present text that he counted or reckoned or considered it to be a fact that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is coming towards us. I wonder how many of us can say that. Think about that for a moment. Could I say that? I don't don't think that all the suffering in this present time is even worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. I wonder how many times we've thought just the opposite. Uh, You know, uh, how many times we felt like, I'm not sure that it's worth being a Christian. I got all the regular suffering that everyone else has, and then I got all this other suffering that is particular to believers. I don't know that it's worth it. I've heard those words come out of people. Not very thought. How many of us have thought that becoming a Christian would it was supposed to do away with all that suffering stuff? I mean, doesn't God promise that it'll take away all our pain and sorrow? We were singing about it this morning. No more sorrow, no more pain. Yeah, it, yeah, that's true. It's what awaits us. It's what awaits us, right? I'm not sure uh, we can actually be certain of what kind of suffering Paul has in mind. I mean, it may be the kind of suffering that is common to all people, or it could be the kind of suffering that is a direct result of you know believers living faithfully for. Christ in a godless world. I mean, one author writes it this way. There is suffering that is the direct result of our sinning. And there is suffering that we endure for Christ's sake. Suffering that arises directly from our Christian profession in a world that rejects Christ. 
But beyond that, there is suffering that arises simply because we are in this imperfect world. That's well put. So it may be that you have felt the disdain of your co-workers because you have told them that you don't want to hear the sordid details of their wild weekend. Or you don't want to listen to their vulgar jokes. Or you don't want to listen to words that are blasphemous. You, you, you felt their disdain over that kind of thing. Or it may be that you had a flat tire on your way to work. I mean, it seems so different, but this suffering, not, you know, the, all the same. And you may end up, you know, being late to work, and then you get in trouble for being late to work. Not because you're a Christian, but because you had a flat tire. I mean, that, that happens. It could be that you turned down a job uh, because you, you would have been required to work on the Lord's Day. And, and, and you felt like that wouldn't be good if you had to do that on a regular basis. Or you, you're just expecting, you're, you're experiencing some kind of illness and it's got you flat on your back for a while. Like COVID, when you're on vacation. I don't think that happened because you were Christians. It's just part of living in this fallen world, right? Perhaps it is the suffering of experiencing the breaking of a close friendship or the, the conflict existing between you and your spouse, uh, whatever your particular suffering has been and maybe still is, God's word says it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. So consider that. Count it. Reckon it. See it as being true. That's what Paul's saying. And notice that Paul says that the, the sufferings of this present time this present time. Even that phrase is significant. I'm sure you probably understand this, but maybe it needs to be pointed out that by this phrase, Paul's not actually referring to the suffering that he was presently experiencing at the time they wrote the letter. And that isn't what he's talking about. He's writing to the church and he's writing about the sufferings of this present time, which is a reference to the whole of our lives as opposed to what awaits us in the presence of God. Life here in the And now, compared to what awaits believers in heaven, that's what is the contrast. So he's speaking about the sufferings that are characteristic of of this present age as compared to what awaits believers in the age to come. And Paul says suffering over against coming glory, doesn't he? Saying that they are not worth comparing. The sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, think about the word worth for a moment. It's not worth. Some of your translation will have it as an adverb. It's not worthy, but it's, it's the same word, oxios. It refers to something that has been set on a, a set of scales to see how it weighs out against something else. Okay? You can picture it, a set of scales, and two things are put on it, one on each side. See how they weigh out. You you read the Old Testament and you realize that God says to the children, hey, no false weights, no false scales. That isn't how you are to do things. He's like, what are you talking about? Well, they would have weights that would say, here's, you know, this is the value of something. Well, they, they might make it less or more than based on the business deal. No cheating, in other words. You know, this is the word that is used here. This is a weight issue. So when I take 
all the suffering of my life, and I think especially we view this as since we've been justified by faith in Christ, if I take all those sufferings and I weigh them on a set of scales, they don't even come close in comparison with the weightiness of the glory that is coming our way. Paul wrote it very similarly in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. Beautiful. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The older you get, the more you realize your outer self, your body is wasting away. Right? It just comes with growing older. And... He says, but the inner man, the inner self, is being renewed day by day. I wonder how that happens. Mm, By the Spirit, through the Word, prayer, fellowship, worship, etc., etc. We get renewed in our spirit day by day. And then he says this, For this light, momentary affliction, affliction is very similar to suffering, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice two things about the sufferings of this present time. It's light, not heavy. It's light. Sometimes it doesn't feel light, but it is. It's light, and secondly, it's momentary, not eternal. It's temporal, not eternal. But there is something that is really weighty. It's not light, it's heavy. And that is the glory that awaits us. Wow, that's so exciting. Mm. Amen. Man, amen. Thank you. <laughs> so Paul's emphasizing that's really, he's saying, it's not even worth putting it on the scale. You know, all the sufferings of this present time. It's not even worth putting it on the scale. Because if you put it on the scale, the glory would be, you know, on the other side, and the glory would be so weighty, it would be like putting a, a giant boulder on one side and a feather on the other. I know about boulders and weightiness. When my truck ran into one and totaled it. Now, if I ran into a feather, not a problem. Weighty glory. So, consider, consider, compare the weight of things. The momentary light suffering of this time versus the eternal weight of glory. Now listen, this might seem like so much hot air if it wasn't written by a man named Paul who experienced a great deal of suffering. Not only common suffering, but suffering in particular to being a follower of Christ and an apostle uh, serving the Lord, sharing the gospel. So let me read you just a partial accounting, Paul's words, of his suffering because of his ministry for Christ. Now, some of these sound like they could be just common suffering. In fact, they were common other people experienced as well. But he's only in the position to experience them because of his ministry for Christ. So here it is, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
that's like without a life preserver. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And if you don't have danger, danger, Will Robinson in your head after reading that, you're young. <laughs> you're a man lost in the space. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. It's like, every time I read that, I think of that. And it puts it in perspective. Danger. He had a lot of danger. Then and there, though. He says, uh, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of my worry or anxiety or concern for all the churches. And yet it is this man who takes a pen and writes that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the weight of the glory that is coming our way. And I don't think that we should assume that Paul had a, you know, an exceptionally high pain threshold or that he was slightly masochistic in his personality. He was just a man. And he had the right perspective about his suffering. Now that, that attitude is particularly refreshing. It is in light of the contemporary assumption that we should be free from pain and affliction and be guaranteed pleasantness. So, now this is not to make light of our suffering. It isn't. I'm not trying to make light of it. I feel like I have my share of it. Uh, talk about a body wasting away. I'm in that, in that category big time. And, and other suffering as well. But it's not to make light of it. We should not minimize the terrible physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual pain that suffering can bring. I mean, it can be awful. It can be almost unbearable. And its intensity can increase to such a degree that we want to scream, whether that's out loud or just in our soul. We just want to, ah! I know that was probably loud, but that was the point. That's what it, it can produce in us, such a heavy burden. We think we can no longer endure, but Paul says that the intensity of our suffering is not even a speck. It's not a speck of dust on the scale compared to the mountainous weight of a boulder of glory that is coming. Weighed out. It's a matter of perspective. We're going to finish next week with the last two points in, in these verses. And then we'll finish the other two reasons that Paul gives us for how we can live holy even though we're hurting can be related to the Holy Spirit and his intercession in our life, and it's going to be related to God's sovereign plan of salvation that he accomplishes on our behalf. So, are you excited? Are you excited about what is awaiting us? I mean, I, I've, been, I've been so blessed by our worship this morning, the songs that we sang the remembrance time, the reading out of Revelation 5, the, the worthiness of the Lamb who is slain, knowing 
that he suffered. He was a lamb standing as if slain. He still bears the marks of his suffering on our behalf. I think we'll see the nail prints in his hands. If he will allow us, we could see where the spear thrust him through. His glorified body, I don't think, got rid of that. Because that's what he said to the apostles after he resurrected. Look, see, put your fingers here. Put your hand here. I think that's how we'll see him. And we ever, ever reminded of how much suffering he went through to make the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. And that's a powerful message for us as believers. And it should be a motivation for anyone who doesn't know Christ. You can have this great promise through faith in Christ. Amen? Yeah. Well, Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for the ability to consider it this morning and count it as true, these precious promises, to be reminded that we were adopted into your family and we're obligated to live as your children and the Spirit, the Spirit indwelling us, leading us and speaking to us, he helps us to do that. And, and to be taught that, that we should have a right perspective about suffering. That's so important because we, life is filled with it. We face it day in and day out. We want to view it as you view it. Momentary. Light. And what you want to use to shape us into people that look more like your son in the here and now, as well as in the age to come. So thank you. We praise your holy name. We do so because Jesus, our great Savior. Amen.